Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of Jude. Jude is the second last book of the New Testament. It's a short letter, just 25 verses. But Jude is a lot like Alan Greenspan. You're wondering how. When Alan Greenspan speaks, it's amazing the ripple effect that it has across uh, the world economy. Uh, corporations make des- decisions based on words he speaks. Uh, banks decide in their lending policies. People decide in their buying practices. It seems like he says something. I don't know about you. I half the time don't understand what he's saying. And huge effects come forth from it. Just a sh- few words. I have to believe that what Jude says in these 25 verses sends a ripple effect across the apostolic world, and really the world beyond that because the book was one of the latest or last ones to be written, and it was during the time of a persecuted church for sure in the first century. And so when believers receive this book, they had to be somewhat surprised. Not only does he make a lot of statements that give us a lot of fodder for debate and discussion, which we'll look at in these verses and the verses that will come in the next sermon from Jude, but he also gives this idea that all is not well in the church. And he doesn't mean to be negative, just to be realistic. That is, the church is planted. All these churches planted in this first century time frame. Thousands come to know Christ. Apostles point teachers and preachers and pastors over these different churches. The church seems to be doing very well. But Paul does warn that wolves will come in. Beware, wolves will come in and they'll, they'll contort and twist the grace of God. They'll pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into sensuality is what Jude tells us. We find out that the church is not completely pure, that there's unbelief even in the church, and it would cause people in that first century church that was so tight and so drawn together to kind of look around and say, so-and-so, what about that questioning that may happen when people realize that just like Israel in the Old Testament had God's people in its midst, but the whole of Israel certainly couldn't be counted as God's people by faith. The same is true of the church, Jude says, that there'll be those who creep in and will pervert the grace of God. They'll deny Jesus in the church with the label of the church. So beware that all is not well. Uh, God will triumph. He will bring his church out triumphantly, but recognize there will be this mixture of impurity always with us. He starts the book of Jude by reminding the people they are called, they are loved, they are kept by God. It is his action to save them and call them unto himself. Then he spends the rest of the the verses, really the next 21 or two verses, telling them all the trials that they'll undergo, uh, either by giving examples from the Old Testament or just telling them the way things are, being honest with them about their need to persevere, to contend for the faith. And then he closes like a grace sandwich with grace in verse 1 and 2 and grace finishing in verses 24 and 25. He's able to keep them from stumbling. So it's encouraging. At the same time, it's very sobering that we hear the examples of the past wherein people presupposed or presumed upon God's grace, tested God's grace, and he showed that he is serious about sin, a message for us today. Hear God's word, Jude 5, 6, and 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, 
serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let us pray. Father, these words are profound. In just 25 verses, Jude just says it like it is. He speaks from you by your Holy Spirit's inspiration. And I pray, God, that we would hear this message today, that we as a people who have been called, who are loved, who are kept, that we would recognize that your judgment on godlessness is sure. And Lord, help it, help it to compel us to obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an interesting story that comes from the motherland. Of course, the motherland is Sicily, you know. I discovered this when I was in the town of Messina. Messina is, if you look at Sicily on a map, it's the top right-hand corner. It's right across from the tip of the boot. It's where you would take a ferry to get across to mainland Italy, uh, northern Italy. And uh, this city has a long, exotic history of ups and downs in many ways. If you know anything about Sicily, and I hope you all know a lot about Sicily, you will know that it has trans transferred hands of, of leadership or governmental authority for years. It's only really in the last hundred years that it's become known as part of Italy. It's really been changed hands between the Spanish, uh, between the, the, the Italians. Uh, you name the different Greek kingdom, they took it over. It's got remnants of every possible civilization on the island. And Messina, in particular, in the turn of the century, towards the 1900s, was one of the most debased of all the cities in the world. It was a, a travel uh, corridor. People came through and stopped there. It was a port city. And it became known as one of the most immoral places on earth in the late 1800s. It even got to the point where the church of the day uh, would, would start to speak out against it, and churches would be burned down. Churches, uh, priests were persecuted for what they believed. So bad was it that in, on December 25, 1908, a newspaper published in Messina printed a parody against God publicly, daring him to make himself known by sending an earthquake. Just three days later, December 28, 5.30 a.m. local time, the most devastating earthquake to ever hit a European city, to date still, hit Messina, Sicily. The city and surrounding district was devastated by this earthquake, which technically was a sea quake one of the worst kind. It created a tidal wave that also came in over the city. Not only were all the, the, the buildings flattened, uh, this tidal wave came over the city and it also caused fires to burst up all around Sicily. It's the Messina fire of 1908, uh, earthquake of 1908. 150,000 inhabitants in Messina at that time. 84,000 people died in that earthquake. Now, am I saying that God brought judgment because they tested him? I can't say that because I don't have God's divine revelation to tell me that. We have to always be careful when we see something bad happen that we immediately attribute it to God's judgment. But you have to admit it's an awful, interesting coincidence. I think what it illustrates is this foolishness of men and women to test God's grace, to assume he's not real, to shake our fist at him, either by what we say or by the disobedience that we live out. It's just as if to say, you're not watching God, you're not real. I'm going to go on doing exactly what I was doing before according to good pleasure of my own will rather than yours. This is true of the world. I hope it's not true of us in the church. But I think what Jude is saying is that, brothers and sisters, you're going to live in a world of unbelief. You're going to live in a, in a culture that will teach you or say to you that God is not real. But don't let that creep into the church. Let no one in the church, no one who knows Jesus, let none of us presume upon God's grace and act as though his judgment is not real. 
And so Jude gives three vivid examples that if you know the scriptures at all, you'll recall these examples. If you don't, they're a great picture of kind of what happens in the Old Testament. He gives three vivid examples of his judgment. And the purpose of God's judgment here displayed is to show us his power and his justice. But I would also submit to you that the show of his judgment is to teach us his people or to compel us to live according to his standards and not get sucked into the spirit of the age. Because God's judgment on godlessness is sure. Therefore, we must not be among those who will be judged. No one should presume upon God's grace. The terror of God's judgment reminds us that our God is serious about sin. He doesn't take it lightly. If you look at verse 4 preceding the text we will be looking at today, you see the people have crept into the church and perverted the grace of God into sensuality. That is, they have taken this view of grace that means that either number one, God is so loving that he just overlooks. And loving, of course, is, is it's a perverted understanding of what love would be. But he's just so loving and accepting of all peoples and everybody's God's children kind of thing, very popular thing to say today, that he could not possibly judge or punish anyone. And so, therefore, go on living like you, you are living or the way you feel like living because God would not judge us. He loves everybody. Or it could just be an outright denial of God's presence by promoting disobedience or saying it's okay to live this way or that way. Well, Jude, forecasting this kind of idea, gives three vivid examples to the people of God, and they're to the people of God for us to be warned, to recognize that our God is serious about sin. Look at verse 5 for the first a distinct example of testing God's grace. Verse 5 gives us the picture of the unbelieving Israelites. Verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Let's look at that verse for a moment. Now I want to remind you. Some versions say, remember. In other words, you're in this state of the church's life where things have gone well in the sense that you're unified. There's been persecution, but that's produced unity and purity. But now there are those who've crept in and they have perverted the grace of the Lord Jesus. Be careful not to get sucked into that. Remember God's people is what he says. Remember, I remind you, although you once fully knew it, but apparently it become foggy in their mind or they were living in some disconnect from God's history of redemption. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, remember when that happened, when Israel comes out of Egypt, out of slavery, but afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I hope you're familiar with the picture of the Israelites leaving leaving uh, Egypt under Moses. Uh, there's been movies on it. There's been discussion after discussion about Moses parting the Red Sea and two million people going through to dry land. Pharaoh's army getting swallowed up. What a picture of redemption we have. But have you ever thought about what verse 5 says, that it was Jesus who saved the people? How many have thought of that? Do you remember Jesus in the Old Testament text? Well, not right in the text of Exodus that talks about about the actual exodus happening. So what is this talking about? What does this mean? Now, first of all, you have to know, and some of your versions may say that the Lord saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And really, the best translation is Jesus, because in the oldest, most uh, accurate manuscripts, we have Jesus, the actual proper name used. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. But even if you were to take the word Lord, like it appears in many versions, it still must refer back to verse 4. Look at verse 4. Who is the Lord in verse 4? our Master and Lord Jesus. So either way, it's still referring to the second person of the Trinity and his part in the Exodus. 
You ever thought about Jesus being that active in redemption in the Old Testament? Most of us think Jesus started the act of redemption in the, the, the crib, in Bethlehem, the, the manger. And he took on flesh. And then from that time, he lived this life we couldn't live. And that's all true. But remember that God gives his son a people to redeem before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1 and 2. In John 10 and 17, we know that he's given us, you who trust Jesus, to the Son. So Jesus is actively, with the rest of the Trinity, the, the Father and the Spirit, working actively for redemption from the beginning of time all the way to its consummation. He is active, our Lord Jesus, even in the Exodus. How so? Well, he works through his representatives, of course, Moses, who represents, in a sense, Christ in his activity, in his intervening for the people of God. But also, Jesus appears in these uh, interesting theophanies where he comes as the captain of the Lord's army or these pivotal moments where he sets the course in a certain redemptive way. That's the second person of the Trinity working. In that way, we could say Jesus redeemed them out of the land of Egypt. What about the picture just before they leave Egypt of that sacrifice, the blood that's applied to the doorposts? Whose blood does that represent? That's the blood of Jesus who would come and give them complete remission of sins. So in this sense, Jude says that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, that is the nation of Israel, you might call it his church, out of the land of Egypt, but afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, to make sure we understand the connection between Jesus and the Exodus, you don't uh, need to turn there, but listen to 1 Corinthians 10, the first two verses. Paul says to the Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, that is Israel, were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. One church. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ, Paul says. They didn't get it all when they were in that day. But in retrospect, looking back with the divine commentary, we know that Jesus has always been actively pursuing the salvation of his people for whom God has given him. Christ was present at the physical redemption of Israel. He was there. At the same time, this great act of grace immediately is followed with judgment. And that's what Jude's saying in all these examples, brothers and sisters. There's great grace in our relationship with the Lord. But recognize that our God is serious about sin. And the people of Israel as a whole follow, but look what happens. As soon as they get on the other side, they're not even, they could probably even smell the fish from the Red Sea. And what do they do immediately? What immediately happens after this great and miraculous activity? Do they have a testimony service? Do they get up and say how the Lord got them through the Red Sea? Do they have uh, a series of services to commemorate what God had done for them by renewing his covenant with them? And how he's about, he's just, they're going to receive the law at Sinai? Any of those things? No. Exodus 32, listen to verses 1 through 5. Moses is delayed now up in the mountain receiving uh, instruction from the Lord. And what do the people do? Just seeing the, they just walk through a sea with walls of water congealed on either side. And this is what they do. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, the, the priest, and said to, them, said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He's taken too long. So Aaron said to them, great spiritual counsel, Aaron, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
in the face and the reaction to this great grace, there are some who saw fit to give credit to a golden calf for what they had done. Some will say that this text in Jude is referring to the apostasy of those at Kadesh Barnea when the, when the spies came back and they reported the giants were in the land and the nation disbelieved and then God made them wander in the wilderness. This is possible. But I believe what's being spoken of is immediately what happens. After the Red Sea is open and they come through and they're redeemed from the hands of Egypt and this occurrence happens where they make a golden calf. There are those in their midst who did not believe, particularly among the leaders. And later in Exodus 32, Moses comes down, has received instruction from God as to what to do with these ones who disbelieve. And this is what Jude refers to. Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. So those who believe, come to me. And they do. Meaning those who did not disbelieve. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go out to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and let each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Their sin, what was it? It was unbelief. So the question for us, what place does unbelief have in your life? And brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about, deny, uh, about those occasions of doubt you have as a human being. I'm talking about denying God, unbelieving, disbelieving, just by our disobedience. And what I mean by this is, who of us would sin? Now think of the last sin that you committed that you're cognitive of. Who of us would sin if we knew God was standing right there and we made the choice to sin? How many of us would say, yeah, I'd still sin if God was standing right in my face? Most of us would say we would not. Of course we would not. But brothers and sisters, God is right there. And we still choose to sin. We still leave in, live in unbelief. Do you know every time we disobey, it's really an act of unbelief? Have you thought about it that way? Now, obviously, what we're talking about here is a national institutional apostasy where they turn their back and defiantly stand in the face of God. But still, let us be warned. Let us recognize that the seed of it is in our hearts, that the seed of just, just denying God's existence or that he won't hold us accountable or that he won't hold sin accountable in general. It's real. It's real, and we have to recognize it on a personal level. But what about the life of the church? What is our witness to the world? Uh, when someone's looking at Redeemer, what do they think our devotion is? Do they see us worshiping a golden calf, or do they see us worshiping the true and living God? And, you know, how that displays itself is different in our, in our lives. But when they look at you, when they look at me, they don't just see me as Tony, the independent one, or the individual one, or you, the, the, the attender or member. They see you as associated with a larger group of people, particularly this church and the church of Jesus. What do they think? What does the world think when they see us? Unbelieving ones, disbelieving ones, or ones who know whom they believe and who will bring us to that day? Who is it that we believe in? Do we see it in the life of the church? You know, I hear often, people are hypocrites, and that's true. We are all hypocrites. The church is not different. The church will always contain impurities. Israel did in the Old Testament. We do today. But still, as we strive towards obeying our Lord, not because it earns us something, but because we're reacting and responding to the redemption that God gave us. Think about what Israel could have done in light of what God just did in their redemption, their physical redemption. If they would have lived obediently, waiting for Moses to come back, 
uh, God would shore them up and make them all the more effective for the work he had for them. I would submit to you it's the same for us as a church. We're impure. You and I together are hypocrites. But as we repent of that and God calls us to believe in him, meaning obey him, the world sees this in its salt, in its light. It has its effect. The first step in reaching people for Christ is the church being the church. That's fallen, broken people who admit that and know that, cling to, cling to Christ, and seek to live accordingly thereafter. That's the proper response to God's salvation. A compromised church, on the other hand, the one that tries to be this big umbrella church, uh, a compromised church completely loses its influence on the culture. It's contrary to the notion that the church of Jesus Christ would be the big umbrella. That's totally opposed to anything that Christ speaks of. The bigger the umbrella, the less seriously we are taken by the world. The world who needs a transcendent message, not more human wisdom. Have you ever noticed how, particularly in this campaign, you have... Uh, Everyone's looking to find out what the Roman Catholic Church will say to its constituents or to those who are members regarding if they, hold, they, they support abortion, per se, and uh, people are waiting for the church to make a statement on it. You hear what the church has done? Let the bishops decide. So there's no statement coming. That's a compromised church. That's one that is not taken seriously. No one takes it seriously. Even the members don't. I know. I come from a long line of it. We don't take it seriously. The church teaches this. So what? Everyone has a position on it. That's what happens when the church seeks to be this big umbrella, compromised institution. It loses its effect, and it really becomes a body of unbelief. God's judgment is displayed here in the unbelieving Israelites. Jude tells it to the people of God to display God's justice, to remind us he is serious about sin, but also to compel us to react properly to God's grace with obedience. Look at the second way in which God uh, shows forth an example of people testing him. Verse 6. Here is a riddle of verses. People discuss uh, these passages for years. It's very interesting. Look at verse 6. The, and the angels now, talking about the unbelieving Israelites first, now, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change, chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we have these prideful and rebellious angels. We can say that for sure. But what is Jude talking about here? And really there are two schools of thought. There's one school of thought that cites the original fall of Satan from, uh, from heaven. Satan, in a third of all heaven, according to the book of Isaiah, fell because he tried to rise up. That is Lucifer, the son of the morning, tried to rise up and rebel against God. And that certainly fits this description. Angels who did not stay in their own position of authority, uh, they rose up against, uh, against God and they were then cast out of heaven. God would not stand any rebellion of that nature, and they were cast out of heaven. That is one possibility. However, my position would be more along the lines of a second interpretation. That is, that this is referring to angels uh, who are spoken of first in the book of Genesis. If you look at the book of Genesis chapter 6 for just a moment, first book of the Bible, the sixth chapter, the first seven verses give us a picture that many of us will just overlook as we think of Noah and the flood. We just come to think that sin had gotten so bad in Noah's day, God had enough, and he judged. That's true. But there's something, some detail missing from that idea. There's something uh, sinister going on that is beyond just the regular human depravity that we see. I, I understand. Even saying regular depravity is a hard thing to say. But this is, there's something more here. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7, what I believe Jude is referring to, an interesting incident that happened before the flood that actually prompted the flood itself. Genesis 6, verse 1, 
when men began to multiply in the face of the, of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Now remember, it always says man began to multiply and had daughters. So the daughters were the sons of those men, we'd assume. Then verse 2 introduces a new, per, a new figure. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So this is this idea that the sons of God, who are they? Well, in the book of Job, the same term, benai Elohim, sons of God, means angels. The angels that came to present themselves, the demons and the devil, to present himself to, jo- to God so that they could have at Job. Remember that in the beginning of the book of Job? They're called the sons of God, or angels. So I would interpret Genesis 6, 1, to be referring to angels, seeing that the daughters of men were attractive. They took wives as they chose. And I understand there are no angels married in heaven, but this isn't in heaven. This is on earth. This is possession. This is something I can't explain fully. But look what the passage says next with regard to the offspring. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide man forever. For he is flesh, his days will be 120 years. Because at this time, people are living as many as 900 years. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man, and he blots them out by the flood, all except Noah and his family. I would see Jude referring to this incident, this time uh, way back uh, before the flood, and it fits chronologically with the other two stories, the Israelites on the one hand, Sodom and Gomorrah on the other. It has a, a great connection to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in that the, the angels went out of their own natural order in order to presume, presume uh, take on relations with those who were not their own. And so for this reason, I think Jude is talking about this incidence where you have this monstrous offspring called the Nephilim coming forward. Why would this be the case? Perhaps it's just Satan's attack on the seed of the woman that would bring forth the Savior eventually. It's a way to mess up the seed, so to speak. And God intervenes and says, no, you're not going to mess up the seed. I'll start over. And Satan knows, if you will, that won't be a method that God will ever allow because the seed will be preserved. Whatever the case, a lot of that can be speculation. We know that the issue here is prideful and rebellious angels. Angels who did not accept or be content with what God had given them to be as his ministers and stepped out of that, whether it be the original fall of Satan or this incident in Genesis 6. Still, the fact remains that pride and rebellion were met with God's judgment. Think of this personally for a moment. I know you're not an angel. It doesn't match this particularly. Some of us really aren't angels, if you know what I'm saying. But what place does pride and rebellion have in your life? Personally, how do you view yourself in relation, for instance, with the other members of your household? How do you accept God's calling in your life? Are you discontent about where you are in life? Now, don't misunderstand me. If there's a place you're in in your life that you shouldn't be because of sin or some uh, direction God is leading you. That's one thing. But when you have a calling that's clear, are you discontent with that calling? Uh, do you think you have a better plan? Is there pride there about what you think should be right about your life? God has given you a certain ministry, a certain vocation, a certain place in this life. Are you like the angel saying, I don't want what you've given me, Lord. I rebel against that. I know better. What areas do you see as rebellion in your life? You're clear on God's direction. However, you still choose to do your own thing. Does that fit you? What about the life of Christ's church? How does pride fit into our church? How does it fit into our interrelating with one another? There's a funny story told by a 
a pastor who says that a young woman asked for an appointment with her pastor to talk to him about a besetting sin that was affronting her. She was very worried about it. When she saw him, she said, Pastor, I've become aware of a sin in my life which I cannot control. Every time I am in church, I begin to look around at the other women, and I realize that I'm the prettiest one in the whole congregation. None of the others can compare with my beauty. What can I do about this sin? The pastor replied, Mary, that's not a sin. Why, that's just a mistake. (laughs) Pride. And that's a funny story, but it will cripple a church. That's a lighthearted story. But as soon as you and I start putting ourselves before anyone else in the church, no matter who it is, as soon as I put myself over you, from in front of you, that is the seed that will start to destroy any congregation, any family, any witness to the world. How do you view your service in the church? Is there a task that's too menial, too big for you, to, or too, too little for you to perform? I'm not going to plunge that toilet. I'm not going to wipe up that bench. I'm not going to help set up those chairs. That's, that's for little people. I've got bigger ministries to take, take on. That kind of seed, that kind of thinking in any of us starts to destroy us. It starts to ruin who we are in Christ. Do you see the order that God has given to our homes, to our church? When each person humbly carries out his or her role in that, our witness, once again, it goes to our witness to the world, is proven all the more effective. We look different than the world when we put others first. It really goes to the heart of sharing Christ with a watching world. That's the second example, pride and rebellion. But let's look at the third example. Again, God's judgment serves to demonstrate his power and justice, but also serves to compel us to live according to his law. Look at the third example in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and just as now, refers back to verse 6, somewhat similar to what was happening with the angels, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, again, I believe that refers to verse 6, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serving as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, you probably know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, I hear it spoken of often as I've been listening closely to the whole debate on homosexual practice and and really sexual immorality in general. It's been interesting to hear how various and sundry preachers will take this passage and other passages like it. Uh, They'll try to explain it away by saying these are culturally bound. This isn't really what it meant. The cinema Sodom and Gomorrah is really one of inhospitality or you name what it is. And there's all these different explanations for it rather than just the clear meaning of Scripture. Now, we have to appreciate the level of depravity that has been reached in these cities. It was not just that they were indulging in sexual immorality of every kind. And by the way, let's just stop for a moment to define sexual immorality for a second. It's important. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity that happens outside of a man and a woman in marriage. So it can be self-sex, it can be homosexual sex, it can be any kind of promiscuous sex, any kind of sex outside of that one flesh union that God has ordained. So really, this whole debate about uh, homosexuality or sexual morality would be best defined by what God says positively about about the relationship between men and women and and people in general. It's this standard in Genesis, the very foundation of the biblical record and of society, man and woman united together by God as one flesh. That is the standard. So it's very simple. If you have the question, is this right? Is this okay? Is this wrong? Does it happen in, the, in this relationship? If it does not, it's immoral. It's a sin. There's no explaining away or looking for the culture for help 
Why would we look to the culture for help? When have they ever helped anyone? Man and woman, one flesh union, anything outside of that, anything outside of that is immoral. Let's not get on any high horse and say that homosexual sin is the worst possible sin. Lust is sin. Pornography is sin. Cheating on our spouse is a sin. And frankly, I don't think God really looks at them as any of that different. It's real easy to point to a group or segment that chooses to do something and act as though we have no guilt on our hands. Like none of us partake of these things. Yes, the particular activity of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexual sex, no question. It's clear here and in other passages. But the bigger picture is sexual immorality of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we could still relate with that today. Certainly we can see this. What is the sin? Sexual immorality and lust. What does the place of lust or sexual immorality then have in our own lives? Let's talk openly and honestly about this. He's telling the people in Jude's day, this will always be a temptation for people. It will always be there. Be honest about it. Don't, don't talk quietly about it. Be honest. It's, it has the power to devour you. And brothers and sisters, we live in a time with unprecedented opportunity for sexual immorality. One click on a spam email could send you spiraling into a world of sexual addiction. And trust me, I've seen the strongest people I've ever known fall into this. Any one of us is totally capable of this happening. To say otherwise is being totally dishonest with yourself and who you are as a person and as a sinner. The constant media onslaught of sexual imagery and suggestion affects us all. How can it not? Trendy fashions and styles cry out with suggestive messages. Literally. Now, this is meddling. I understand this. And I can clip this out of the tape after I say it. It's meddling. I don't have daughters. But I can promise you if I do, there would not be something written on her backside. That is wrong. It is totally wrong to have that happen. Why don't you just put a billboard? Why don't the fathers just put a billboard and say, look at my daughter? You wouldn't do that. Think of these things as we consider the culture we live in. It's important for us to be very careful, very careful in this area because it has the power to destroy people. And I'm not talking of some old-fashioned prude. I'm saying that, that any of these things outside of God's ordained order hurts people's souls. People don't recover from these things well. It destroys people at times. Thanks for the God, thank the Lord for his grace that he gives healing. Don't underestimate the depth of damage, this kind of thing. As happy as you see these, these videos advertised and these people are all laughing at their immorality, they're not laughing inside, I promise you. They're creating the image of God and they're getting devoured by it. The church has to speak on these matters. The church has to be aware of these matters. How about in the life of the church? Because the church is always affected by this in every culture. How do we acknowledge the battle? Do we just say it's not there and don't talk, especially among men, about these things or husbands and wives? That's just asking for problems in these areas. Jude gives us a clear picture of what God does, how he takes seriously sin. Let's be careful, individually and corporately, with all these areas that we've just spoken of. In 1982, ABC Evening News reported an unusual piece of modern art, to say the least. It was a chair affixed to a 12-gauge shotgun. It was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly into the gun barrel. The gun was loaded and set on a timer that would uh, fire at an undetermined point in the next 100 years. The amazing thing is that people waited in lines to sit and stare in the shell's path. They all knew that the gun would go off point blank in their face at any moment, but they were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen during their minute in the chair. I think that's what's going on a lot of today in our culture. People, there's some rush they think about testing God. That I'm going to sit in this seat and the blast won't go off while I'm sitting in the chair. And you know what? Maybe it won't in this life. 
But that kind of persistence, defiance against God, it will go off. God is serious about sin. He calls his people to be serious about it also. I conclude with asking these three questions and trying to give an answer based on what we have just read. First of all, why do you think these particular sins are mentioned by Jude? Why do you think? Well, think of them. Unbelief, pride, and sex. They all go together in some way. They kind of feed the other ones. And I think it's safe to say that if you want to even use the, uh, the lust of the eyes, the, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, all the different texts in Scripture tell us the different deadly sins and so forth, you can really put them all under unbelief, which includes disobedience. Uh, pride, just the idea that I am my own master uh, and God is, is going to, you know, my co-pilot kind of idea, God is. And then sex, which is, is that you could do all right in the other two and the other one can get you. It's just a fact of life. These are pitfalls we'll all deal with. And he wants to give biblical examples of what happened to those who tested or presumed upon God's grace and then were judged accordingly. So they really embody the three main areas of temptation we experience. When I say we, I mean all of us. We are all sinners who will deal with such things. Well, what if I struggle with these things may come up next? We see what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, the unbelieving Israelites, the angels. What, look what happened to them. They showed themselves to be total unbelievers. But I'm a believer and I still struggle with these things. Struggle is the key word. There's a big difference between struggle and defiantly acting. You are going to struggle with sin, brothers and sisters. And the beauty is Jesus has bought you with a price and he holds you. He knows you struggle. And his life, is going to be, his life was given to not only save you, but to sanctify you. And throughout your life, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will give you victory. It takes time. Two steps back, three steps forward. That's sanctification. But he never lets you go. You're called, you're kept, you're loved. Struggle's the key word. If you're struggling this morning, you say, one of these sins has really got me. The struggle shows that the Lord is living in your life. Engage in the struggle. He give you the ability to rise above. Paul says that he had a legitimate struggle in Romans 7 with sin. The things he wanted to do, he wouldn't do. The things he shouldn't have done or was told not to do, he struggled to still do them. He would do them anyways. It's an honest struggle with sin. In 1 Corinthians, Paul acknowledges that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. So there's no temptation that you are currently under that God will not provide a way out. None. He says it in his word. I know you may seem feel helpless. I'm sure there's someone who feels totally enslaved to one of these things. I understand, and I think everyone could relate at some level, whatever it is for you. But God can give you the ability. Will it ever stop being a struggle? Not till heaven. But there's something even in the struggle that manifests the perfection of our Lord who saves us. There's something even that glorifies God in the struggle. So we're not talking about, if you struggle with this, still rest in the grace of God. That's, this is not saying that someone who struggles will be put off. But we are told, even as strugglers, put off the sin that so easily besets us. Where the danger is, brothers and sisters and friends, the danger is when you defiantly stand against God and his standards and say, I will escape his wrath. He won't get me or he's not even real. He will. And as Jonathan Edwards, awake and fly, flee from the wrath to come, is what he says. Flee to who? Christ. Christ is the only one who can save you from that kind of thinking, that kind of life, that kind of living. Finally, I ask the question, as I think any interpreter of Scripture should do, what is the place of our Lord Jesus in all of this? Verses, uh, the first four verses end with this idea of people denying our Master and Lord. Well, we know that's not how we are to be. He is our Master and our Lord. So we ask the question, how does Jesus fit into this passage about judgment? 
And brothers and sisters, I think as you read, you see, you may say to yourself, well, people get what they're, what's coming to them and that they've defiantly shaken their fist at God. But I would pause us for a moment to think, why is Tony not numbered among the unbelieving Israelites? There's nothing I've done that makes myself among the believing. It's not mine. Why is it that Tony's not, uh, maybe not obviously a supernatural being like an angel, but why am I not the one who's leading the rebellion against God? I certainly should be. Why is it that Tony is not numbered among those of Sodom and Gomorrah? Why not? Is there anything in me that's made me to be numbered outside them? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. That's where Jesus comes in. The wrath that was poured on upon those who disbelieved, who lived out their disobedience, the wrath that was poured on them still had to be poured out on someone for your sin, for my sin. I could be all those things. And in a manner of speaking, I am. But the wrath that was supposed to come to me, Jesus, if you will, runs in front of that wrath that's coming to Tony or coming to you, to coming to those who look to Christ, and he stops it, and he takes all that wrath upon himself. So all the judgment that we see here, we rest in the grace that Jesus stops that judgment from hitting us. That is your motivation for righteousness. That is your motivation for right living. That is your motivation for following God's standards. If you're here just trying to do better, trying to work harder at this or that, and thinking you're going to make yourself presentable to God, you've got to stop right there. You're on a treadmill that will never stop. You have to stop right there and see that there's complete remission for sin in what Jesus has done in intervening so that God's wrath would not hit you. The only difference between me and someone who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah is that Jesus interceded for me. I can't explain that. I just know it's true. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. That's my answer. That's Jude. That's what he's saying to us. He's giving us a vivid picture of judgment. Not to scare you, but to make you run into the arms of Christ, your Savior. The only one who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless and blameless in his sight on the last day. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for covering me with your with your precious righteousness. Lord God, I thank you for saving your people, your people here gathered, for each person here who trusts in the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly for their salvation. They know, they know that there's nothing about them that commends themselves to you, that it's of your grace. Lord, I pray that you would make us appreciative in a whole new way of what you've done for us, that we would turn around from here and live in reaction to the grace of God for us sinners. Lord, bring people to Jesus as a result of your church going forth as broken people, broken people who have been saved from the wrath of God by our Lord Jesus. And may all the world know that Christ is, in fact, our Master and our Lord. Pray this in his name. Amen.